Hello and welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, Azra Wrap. I'm your host today, Raj Gupta. I'm coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a professor of anesthesiology at Vanderbilt University, and I um, have the distinct pleasure of talking to some experts in headache management today, and we're going to talk about advances in headache treatment. Um, this is a big problem, particularly migraines, for a, a huge population in uh, the United States and across the world. And we're going to talk about some of the latest updates in medications and therapeutic treatments uh, for these patients and hopefully improve their quality of life. Before we get to that, I do want to make a couple of announcements uh, related to Azra pain medicine. First off is, as uh, if anybody listened to the podcast last month, um, we're starting a new trend. We're actually sponsoring each podcast with one of the special interest groups within um, uh, the Azure Pain Medicine Society. So this one, there's a special interest group for headache management. And so they're uh, sponsoring this podcast and we're talking about their topics. And each month we're going to have a different special interest group that's going to be uh, represented in these shows. So I think it'll spread out the topic areas that we're talking about and make for a broader audience of uh, material to cover within this podcast. Second thing, um, the uh, Green Anesthesia Special Interest uh, Group is hosting a webinar on October 1st, Saturday, October 1st. And um, this is a webinar open to all members, and you can register, members and non-members, and you can register for that uh, webinar. I'm going to put the link up here on the screen. And you can go to this link and register for that webinar. It's a full day talking about environmental sustainability in relationship to your acute pain, chronic pain practice, and what we as anesthesiologists, pain physicians can do to help be environmentally conscious in our medical environment. So I think it's going to be a great um, panel of speakers, a wonderful set of topics. I've seen the schedule. It's really remarkable. So I encourage you to go to the link and register for that webcast webinar. Second thing is I want to mention that the Azure Pain Medicine Fall Meeting, which is focused primarily on pain, chronic pain management, is coming up very, very soon. But the deadline I really want you to know about is the abstract deadline. So this is coming up August 23rd, and I want to encourage you guys to go to that link and submit your abstracts for this meeting. These meetings are always phenomenally attended, great science, great clinical uh, learning, workshops, hands-on experiences, and of course the connections and collaboration with experts across the across the country and across the world, in fact, in pain management. And I encourage you guys to go to the meeting, but also submit science. Of note, they are doing a special type of abstract during this meeting. It's a humanities-based abstract. So you they want to see submissions from the membership on art, poetry, other visual arts like painting, um, music, anything that you can think of in the humanities. And this is part of an effort to think about wellness and well-roundedness as part of pain management, both from a professional side for the clinician, but also from a patient perspective in how they deal and cope with their pain struggles. So again, a really unique opportunity during this fall meeting. This is the first one that we're going to have. I've got in my pipeline a couple of photography abstracts I'm going to submit, so we'll see what kind of reception they get at the meeting. With that, with those announcements, I do want to move on to our guests. 
So I want to introduce our guests. I'll go through each one uh, one at a time. So first off, I have Meredith Broad. She's a clinical associate professor of anesthesiology, perioperative, and pain med- perioperative medicine and pain medicine, as well as neurology and neurological sciences at Stanford University. She's board certified in headache and pain and focuses on facial pain. And Dr. Broad is a co-director of the Stanford Oral Facial Facial Pain Program. That's a little difficult to say. That's a lot of words there. Um, and serves as the program director for Stanford's Pain Fellowship. Dr. Broad is the Azra Pain Medicine Headache SIG newsletter liaison, so already involved in these special interest groups. Second, I've got Gaurav Chohan. Gaurav is an assistant professor of anesthesiology and perioperative medicine and director of the neuromodulation research at the University of Pittsburgh. He was a FAIR scholar at the 2017 ASA annual meeting and the May 2022 Azure Pain Medicine member spotlight physician. Um, His current research focuses on determining the comparative effectiveness of interventions used for chronic pain management and is currently working on a curriculum development for ultrasound and chronic pain interventions. And then last, definitely not least, is Nat Schuster. Nat is a headache and pain neurologist and associate professor and clinical director, clinic director at the UC San Diego Center for Pain Medicine. He's an Azra Pain Medicine Headache SIG Chair and Executive Vice President of the World Headache Society. So I'm hoping you know a couple of things about our topic today. Uh, he's a recipient of the Migraine Research Foundation 2018 Impact Award and section editor for the Neuropathic Pain section for the journal Pain Medicine. His research interests include headache and neuropathic pain and is currently conducting the first placebo-controlled trial of cannabis for acute migraines. So I want to welcome all of you. Thank you for being part of the panel and podcast today. I'm going to take a moment and I'll start with myself. Um, we always like to start with any disclosures of conflicts of interest. So just as a disclosure, I'm a member of the board of directors for Azure Pain Medicine. I'm also an associate editor for the journal Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. I don't think any of those affect my conflicts during this topic of conversation. Meredith, anything to disclose there at the beginning? Um, I'm currently participating uh, in a trial, clinical trial uh, for remigipant and trigeminal neuralgia. So I don't know if we're going to get into that, but uh, if we do, I will acknowledge that. And I'm a, I'm an associate editor for, um, the, for pain medicine, the journal of AAPM. Great. And Gaurav? Uh, the only conflict of interest I have is that I have migraines at times. Yeah, I have some every now and then too. So I, I should have disclosed that at the beginning, but I don't make many much money from them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so similar to you, no conflict of uh, interest for this podcast. Great. And Nat? I've spoken for Eli Lilly on a couple of the new migraine medications, and I've done some consulting for Eli Lilly and for Lundbeck about some of the new migraine medications. Fantastic. So uh, let's just dive into the topic. So I'm going to kind of... Um, share an article that was passed around with us and and that's sort of our anchor of our conversation it's not going to be the complete conversation but there was in uh 2021 the american headache society consensus statement it was an update on um uh, migraine treatments integrating new migraine treatments into clinical practice and the um this was uh, an update to a previous consensus statement and the entire focus was to give clinicians the latest research on what acute treatments and preventive therapies are available for patients dealing with migraines either uh, intermittently or chronically. So Nat, I'm gonna start with you. And from a high level, um, you know, as you kind of think about headache management in the current state, you know, in the past it was triptans and 
that's about it. Um, things have evolved quite a bit. Where do you see the current state of migraines? If we if we were talking to a more generic population of people, not headache specialists, how do you group the categories of opportunities there are for headache management right now? Yeah, so what we've always been doing for patients is most often if a patient's coming to, say, a chronic pain clinic like the ones that we practice in or to a tertiary headache center, most of these patients are going to need two classes of treatments. They're going to need a acute or an abortive treatment. So... Uh, you mentioned the triptans, for example, are in that class, and that's what people take when they get a migraine. But then most of these patients also need to be on preventive medicines or prophylactic medicines. And so for so many years, we used three classes of medicines, antiepileptics, antidepressants, and antihypertensives. Uh, as migraine preventive medicines. And then 2010, we got for the chronic migraine patients, so those who had more than 10 uh, more than 15 headache days and more than eight migraine days per month, then now you have Botox, onabotulinum toxin A for chronic migraine. And so then we had no new treatments coming to market until 2018. And that's when we got this uh, new wave of medications that we're here to chat about today, um, where we first got uh, three monoclonal antibodies in 2018 for migraine prevention. And then in 2020, we got uh, two new um, oral medications for acute treatment initially for um, migraine. Plus, we got another acute treatment uh, that targets the 5-HT1F receptor. And then uh, come 2021, we got another uh, medication um, that was a small molecule CGRP antagonist for uh, migraine prevention. Plus, uh, one of these acute treatments, Remagepant, also got a indication for prevention, and as well as some of these non-invasive neuromodulation devices, uh, one more of them hit the market. And so this new wave of treatments, and um, the uh, one that I think has gotten the most buzz is the CGRP class of medicines. And so CGRP is calcitonin gene-related peptide, and this is a uh, sensory neuropeptide that since the late 80s, there's been research about its role in migraine pathogenesis. And so it took a while before we started getting drugs that are going to um, selectively bind to either CGRP ligand, which are monoclonal antibodies, or to the receptor. Um, and so we both have one monoclonal antibody that binds to it, as well as three small molecule antagonists. And um, it's been really exciting to have this new uh, disease-specific class of medicines to treat migraine. And Meredith, so when you are looking, so you focus on trigeminal pain, uh, facial pain, obviously headache fits into that as well. Um, is there just excitement about these new drugs? Are you starting to see them in treatment? Are there early trials? Where are these in, in their trajectory? Um, or are they so cost prohibitive that they're like fourth or fifth line for patients? Well, for migraine, most insurances are still um, mandating a stepped approach to treating, to using these medications. By stepped approach, that means you have to have tried and failed some of the less expensive preventive options or less expensive acute options before you're allowed to access these newer medications. Um, they are not, they're only approved thus far 
for migraine. So for for things like trigeminal neuralgia, it's there's a lot of interest in it, um, but it's not it's not uh, you know FDA approved yet, and and off label use obviously is not paid for by insurance. Um, maybe Nat, you want to talk about the 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 one thing about about CGRP is that it's it is more dense and found much more heavily in the trigeminal ganglion, which is why it is um, so exciting for for headache and facial pain. We we've a lot of people have been excited about trying to use it in other ganglia throughout the body, but it doesn't seem, as far as I'm aware of, to be as uh, robust in that, in other sensory ganglia. Right. So um, in non-headache pain conditions, we don't have evidence yet of these being effective. Um, but where they seem to work is at the uh, trigeminal ganglion. And so they're not going through the blood-brain barrier and they don't have the uh, CNS side effects that we've seen with so many of the migraine medicines that we've given patients in the past. And so um, that's a huge advancement for our patients. Just the, the tolerability of this class of medicines um, is uh, much better and, and largely probably because it doesn't cross through the blood-brain barrier. So you're able to actually treat a central nervous system disorder via the trigeminal ganglion without having a drug that crosses the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, in the article, they give a nice cute name to this category, the G-Pants, or am I saying that right? <laughs> you know, the G-E-P-A-N-T-S, I guess that's the end of the name. And then there's another one called the Ditans, which is slightly different, different receptor. Um, but uh, one of the comments made in the article was that uh, compliance is poor with preventive therapies for um, traditional medications. But some of these are, um, especially the murine antibody, the, the monoclonal antibodies, are once a month, once a quarter injections, and so you're getting something that hopefully has a long-acting effect. Um, Gaurav, have you ever used any of these medications? Are they not quite in your practice yet in in chronic pain? Or like this, it's very difficult to get uh, uh, insurance approval for these medications. And then usually, you like uh, Dr. Barard said, it has to be a stepwise approach. Documentation plays a huge part into writing down that, hey, patient has tried other medications and has failed two triptans in uh, combination of triptans and patient has also failed other conservative medical therapy, Botox injections. And in consultation with neurologists, I think using a GE pant could be a viable alternative for this patient. Uh, so like, the, like there are a lot of insurance regulations uh, with these medications and then patient compliance also remains poor. Uh, but I have been, uh, I, I try to like, uh, in consultation with neurologists, prescribe imagipen to the patients. That's sort of my go-to drug because it is both uh, acute and preventative medication as well. Uh, and like they said, the side effect profile is is a little bit favorable. It's uh, It does not have a lot of side effects uh, uh, like uh, tricyclic antidepressants or triptans have. And one of the things that I saw in the article was that it seemed to be that the American Headache Society, in collaboration with some patient advocates, was really trying to make a statement that our current um, recommendations or requirements from insurers is um, too stringent for adequate patient care, often too delayed for adequate, considering the amount of quality of life um, uh, impact that migraines can have on patients. Um, there was a one quote that said that the migraines are associated with a uh, almost an annual cost of about $27 billion in the United States alone mostly in lost productivity. 
Um, and I know, as I mentioned earlier, I have luckily not chronic migraines, but I've had the occasional migraine and ended up in the emergency department. It was so bad because um, uh, they can be quite debilitating. And I've seen several friends and who are uh, can't work because of uh, migraines. So I, I think some of the things said that these trial periods can last six to 12 months. Uh, is that what you guys are seeing? Meredith, are, are you guys seeing people having to go through long, long periods of these traditional therapies before they can get to these current therapies? Absolutely. I mean, this is a really big issue. And the um, American Headache Society scientific meeting, there were many people that were discussing the um, almost injustice of this of this issue. Um, and one of the abstracts that my um, one of my groups published was uh, we went back and we looked at all of the literature that has been used to um, build consensus and to um, determine what are the, the best medicines. So for example, you might have read in your medical liter your medical school book that propranolol is indicated for migraine treatment. But when you go back and you look at those studies for propranolol, there were you know, 10 patients in 1960 in a single blind, maybe a single blinded trial, maybe single blinded at best. And those really bad studies were used to, to, to lead to the, uh, the American Headache Society and, and the American Academy of Neurology saying that they are probably effective. And that's sort of become our gold standard. Compare those 10 patients in 1960 to the very large, extremely well done randomized controlled trials, double blind randomized controlled trials of the MABs and the G pants today. And there's really just no comparison about how the science was done. So we are struggling as a, as a group to reframe the conversation and to advocate for our patients, because I think most of us feel that um, these are these are superior treatments. They have better science behind them. In our clinical practice, patients adhere to them. Patients find them more effective, and um, and patients don't come back, which is you know a lovely thing for a migraine provider when a patient says, "I don't need to see you anymore, Doctor Barad. My headaches are are good, well controlled." One of the things that you mentioned that at the beginning was that there was an evolution from um, or an a opportunity for these new medications, but then there's also opportunities for neuromodulation. I'm going to go to Gaurav about this after you, Nat. Is um, tell me what's happening in neuromodulation because w what I'd seen a few years ago was implantable stimulators. Um, people putting in uh, things very close to spinal cord stimulators, but with multi. Uh, lead endpoints that were inserted under the skin, either for um, uh, 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 supraorbital nerve uh, headaches, uh, for the frontal frontal headaches, or occipital nerve, or auricular nerve placements. And these are not benign treatments. They were traumatic, um, and people I saw many times had erosion of leads go through. It doesn't sound like, it sounds like people have moved on from that. Is that correct? And What's the what's the current neuromodulation um, therapies that people are using? Yeah, so um, the three big established uh, neuromodulation companies they did trials looking at occipital nerve stimulation uh, in the early two thousands, um, and um, none of those were really 
um, had a good enough signal for efficacy, you know, also taking into account the complication rates that those three companies wanted to further explore that. So at this point, insurance coverage of occipital nerve stimulation is um, pretty limited. Um, and certainly, I think Everybody, you know, whenever I've probably the last, you know, four conferences I've been at where there's been panel discussions about this topic, that the consensus has been that certainly patients should be using onabotulinum toxin A and the CGRPs, you know, trials of monoclonal antibodies before you're thinking about implantable therapies. Um, there's uh, there, you know, I'm sure there's going to be ongoing clinical trials using some of the newer um peripheral nerve stimulators uh, and trying to develop um, and further explore um, uh, peripheral nerve stimulation for migraine. But at this point, it's uh, certainly, you know, not where it was, um, you know, the enthusiasm's not where it was before we got the CGRPs and uh, onabotulinum toxin A, uh, but we have these non-invasive neuromodulation devices. And when it comes to at a societal level for the 38 million Americans who have migraine, these non-invasive neuromodulation devices don't have nearly, you know, the dent uh, big picture um, on migraine that the medications do because they're not being used nearly as widely and they're not being covered by insurances. So in my practice, you know, I can get CGRP monoclonal antibodies or GPANTS covered for my patients. You know, I know what steps to take them through. I can get them very quickly. But the non-invasive neuromodulation devices of which we have at this point five of them, uh, by and large are not covered by insurance. So the first one that we had was a superorbital nerve stimulator called cephaly that patients wear on their forehead. Um, and that is at this point, it is over the counter. I can just give patients um, the website, they can go online, they can order it. Um, it's not cheap. Um, and it's helpful for some patients, not helpful for everybody, uh, but certainly something that I've uh, recommended for many of my patients. What is, um, what is not cheap out of curiosity? Do you know, is it like oh, hundreds of a, dollars, thousands, tens of thousands? Around $400. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're in pain, a visit to the ER costs more than that. So, you know, $400, if it works for you, may not be expensive. Depends on how you're looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, patients, you know, if they find that's not effective, they have two or three months that they can uh, mail it back and get their money back. So that was the first one. Um, and then there um, is a single pulse transcranial magnetic stimulation um, device, STMS Mini, um, and that has the best um, evidence uh, for migraine with aura. Uh, so then that one came to market. And then another one uh, that's a um, vagus nerve stimulator uh, that patients hold up to their necks and they can use that for some of the um, trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, including cluster headache, as well as for migraine. Um, so that was the third one that came to market. And then the fourth one um, was a, or is a device uh, called Nerivio. That's an armband. And so they discuss that in these new um, guidelines. Um, and that one um, can only be used at this point for acute migraine treatment. Um, and that works by uh, what they call conditioned pain modulation, where it, um, it is somewhat noxious and it, it um, triggers uh, descending inhibition um, as a acute treatment for migraine. And then uh, the most recent one that I think is still in a limited launch, but I probably have maybe about a, maybe, uh, around 
probably 10 patients who have used it at this point, is a combined superorbital and occipital nerve stimulator. Um, and that's called Relivion. Um, and so that's the newest one that's uh, come to the market. And so all these can be used for some patients. I use this almost invariably in patients who have already tried some of the things that are covered by insurance, you know, with the exception being those patients who say, doc, you know, I do not want a medication, then I might go to some of those. Uh, but for the most part, I like to have my patients using the things covered by insurance before we start going into some of these things that are not covered by insurance. So Gaurav, um, you know, Nat talked about several of these, and I know you have an interest in neuromodulation. Have you had an opportunity to use these on your patients? What has their experience been like with some of these things, if you have? So Neuroleaf or Relivian, this occipital and supraorbital uh, uh, device is something that I, I was looking into. And uh, there is no like, uh, there is the studies done on this device are basically done by the company. There, are, there is no institutional or third-party studies at this point that I'm aware of. Um, I haven't used neuromodulation for this, but we have used intrathecal pump therapies using pre-alt and uh, opioids for, for migraine headaches. Um, um, making sure that the catheter is really high at like C2, C3 level. And we actually published on one of the case reports in which we used lumbar pre-alt therapy and patient has resolution of migraine. Neuromodulation, like Dr. Shastra said, it's a lot of issues when we use neuromodulation for uh, migraine treatments. Basically, number one uh, limitation is that uh, you can cause infections, you can make things worse. Uh, lead erosions, lead migrations, and accessing the cavity can sometimes be a problem. Like there was phenopalatine uh, neurostimulation um, that was trialed in Europe in 2014. It didn't catch on cause. Uh, it really sits in, in that in that foramen and can uh, induce infections. Foreign body in that place can definitely induce infections. So neuromodulation did not actually catch up for migraines. Uh, unless it's, it's non-invasive, and then non-invasive does not have like a large data body of data behind it but i think so, g-pens uh, and these newer treatments are more effective than some of the data published by non-invasive neuromodulation and can so more i'm going to play my uh, ignorance card here so you said something about the intrathecal uh yes. high intrathecal placement and you said pre-alts what does that mean what does pre-alts mean uh, so pre-alt is econotitis it's uh, one of the medications that we use for chronic pain for refractory chronic pain we use pre-alt treatment therapies uh an intrathecal pump, um, like so I that's said, not that's not stimulation. That's you're not putting stimulating that, wires intrathecally. That's not stimulation. Uh, okay, that is just intrathecal therapies that we used, and like the I see the, uh, the evidence is anecdotal. Like we had few case reports in which it worked for migraine patients. Okay, so still pretty experimental or yes. um, you know novel treatments. Yeah, Raj, can I? Yeah, I just want to interject here. So. Um, Nat and myself in a, in a consensus panel um, put out a, a, a nice paper reviewing all of the uh, procedural studies available, randomized controlled trials for migraine. And, um, you know, it was our part of our consensus panel that there, there were no there were no randomized control trials looking at intrathecal medication for migraine. And so we recommended strongly against it. So I, I do think that that's like very, very strongly anecdotal. Yes. Um, 
I, I do think maybe we, sh we could go back to um, stimulation, to implantable stimulation, because I, I do think this is going to come around on the guitar again with all of the peripheral nerve stimulators that, you know, uh, Sprint first, which has gained approval by the FDA to implant uh, above the neck. And so um, the, the biggest issue with implantable stimulation, when it when it started back in the early 2000s and we had several large randomized controlled trials looking at various various different types of ways to 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 implant stimulation is that it um, moved <laughs> and that is the problem with the neck is that it is a very mobile place and um, it's a it's a struggle to really get the stimulators to sit and to stay put and for that to translate into effective pain control. So you had something like 40%, um, you know, side effects in, in the patients and 20% move, movement of the stimulators. And like, these are big numbers and, and that's not going to work well for carrying this into the future. But if you could solve that issue, if you could do maybe a temporary peripheral nerve stimulator for somebody that's having an acute exacerbation and really getting into a hot area of their headaches. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I, I think that there's a lot of interest in peripheral nerve stimulation. And I would say like, there's a lot more science in there that we can, that we should go to and look to and get excited about rather than intrathecal, which I think really puts our, you know, is, is kind of, way needs a lot lot more science behind it before we're ready to say that that's that that's uh the next option for patients with migraine yeah. there are newer generation um neuromodulation devices like stem wave that do not require an ipg like the ipg is inbuilt inside the lead itself so all you need to do is just implant it and there is no ipg outside um and all you need IPGs, to... implantable pulse yeah. generator, right? Yes, there is yeah. no, unlike Sprint, in which you have to connect to an IPG and take out the device after 60 days, StimWave can stay inside in the occipital region and it's IPG free. So, uh, all you need to wear is a special collar around the neck to activate the device and uh, give you neuromodulation or stimulation. Yeah. So and I, I and I want to just uh, second, you know, what Meredith, you know, said both, you know, from uh, when it comes to um, you know, intrathecal therapy, not really having the evidence, but also, you know, talking about the role of opioids. Um, and certainly uh, opioids we know can cause medication overuse headaches. So it's always been a struggle to try to keep people like in chronic pain treatment away from opioids, getting them off of opioids. And so one of the, uh, for example, one of the uh, consult questions I used to get from neurologists uh, before this new wave of, of um, medications came to market was a patient was on a triptan, they had an MI, uh, they were really good triptan responders. And now what can you do for them? You know, should this patient be getting opioids? Because, well, you know, they're not a candidate for triptans and um, due to their comorbidities, they're also not a, a candidate for NSAIDs anymore. So before 2020, well, the answer used to be, I guess we can try some D2 antagonists, things like metoclopramide or prochlorperazine, for example. Um, and now we have these new, with this new wave of medications, we have uh, the G-pants and we have this one Ditan that 
do not have the cardiac contraindications that come with triptans. And so, you know, the, if the question is, should this be, patient be on opioids? The answer is no, of course not. Here we have three new medications. Let's try some of these. And these non-invasive neuromodulation devices also are really good options for those patients. I do want to bring back one of the comments that the article talks about at the beginning, which I think that we should, uh, in in our due diligence, uh, emphasize is that patient education, lifestyle modifications are still the mainstay of primary therapy, um, nutrition, exercise, stress, sleep, hydration. Um, and then I, one thing I found very interesting and makes so obvious sense, but because I haven't been in this conversation before, is the migraine diary. Um, much of what you talked about, about the different therapeutics, depends a lot on what type of migraines, how often the migraines, um, how debilitating they are. Uh, it seems like that migraine diary is the beginning of all of those conversations. Um, as we wind down this conversation, I want to give everybody a chance, if there's any last thoughts you guys want to make, um, sort of my summary kind of assessment from an outsider's point of view on this is that um, we're not stuck in 2000 anymore. We're not stuck with and limited to some of the therapies. Um, there has been progress made. There are opportunities for patients. There's still some hurdles that are going to be challenges for patients and clinicians, um, but there's optimism there as well. So uh, it's still an exciting field to look at. Uh, Meredith, any last thoughts before we wind this up? Um, and and Again, if you want to tailor it towards your focus on trigeminal uh, neuralgia pain and where some of these therapeutics kind of lead into that, I'm happy to let you mention that too. I, you know, I don't have any exciting science to share yet, so we'll have to have another <laughs> webinar about how they are on facial pain. But I do think it's an exciting time, and I think that Azra has really. Um, invested in educating its participants about these new treatments. And I think that's great for, for providers. And, and, and um, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why Azra is such a great place is that you can come and learn about all the new developments in pain. So thank you, Raj, for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. Nat, any, any last thoughts before we wind up here? Yeah. So first of all, uh, again, thank you, Raj, for having us. And so one thing that I'd like headache uh, or uh, that I'd like pain doctors to take from this is thinking about, you know, this with these new medicines, we have disease specific treatments that are well tolerated are, and are effective and hopefully can give hope to pain doctors thinking about, you know, hopefully these are the sorts of medicines that we want to have in the chronic pain field as well for our patients. Um, so I hope that this should give us hope. And I think that there are a lot of lessons to take from, uh, from these new medicines. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome that, you know, one of the things that, and this is a plug for what uh, Azure Pain Medicine as a society is doing is we're really empowering the special interest groups, these SIGs, to generate content and find experts in the field. Uh, you know, one of the complaints the society got for many years is that, um, there's only a couple of people talking on the podium, but really the topics are diverse and have little niches within them. And so these special interest groups give us a podium, a platform for these conversations for people interested in these smaller uh, uh, niche topics that then get brought to the main stage over time as they mature and get uh, the attention of uh, a larger group of people. So azra.com slash SIGs for any of the SIGs to look at and then slash headache if you're interested in this topic to see what else uh, is coming up. And then uh, Gaurav, any last thoughts? Now, I and, and Nat, going back to you before I get to Gaurav is um, I intentionally left out the cannabis discussion because that's like a whole 
two-hour conversation. So it's not that I ignored that part of treatment. It's um, let's see where that's going in the research, and maybe the next time around we have this, we'll have more data on cannabis for migraine treatment, or maybe we'll have a longer cannabis discussion, broadly speaking, because there's a lot to discuss about that topic, and it doesn't seem to seems to have something new every six months. So um, hard to keep up with that topic. Yeah, Gaurav, any last? Yeah, we'll get you back on this. Gaurav, any last thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I would like to echo the sentiments of Dr. Barad and Dr. Shastra. Precise patient education, physician education is also very important to bring these medications mainstream so that physician can tell the patient, hey, these are options available to you. Go talk to your insurance. Why are they not being covered? You know, so I think these podcasts go a long way in, in educating physicians like me. And I think Azra has done a wonderful job. Till these medications come in textbooks that we read, I think it's still early and I didn't see any textbooks, you know, discussing these medications. And so and uh, there is lack of education uh, when it comes to chronic pain physicians regarding these medications. So they are like reluctant in prescribing them and discussing them with, the, with, their, with their patients. So I think physician education goes a long way. And Azra has done an amazing job with this podcast and I, and I hope they continue this. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, and, and I'm a firm believer that, you know, all of our decision making should be rooted in science as much as possible. But the science moves at a certain pace, textbooks move at a slower pace, Absolutely. and then innovation, research, clinical experience moves at a faster pace. And somewhere in the middle of all of that, we have to get to changing practice um, over time, hopefully as much evidence-based as possible. So I'm a firm believer in sharing information on these platforms so that we can learn from each other in that fastest phase, but then hopefully the literature follows to give us more sound grounding on some of these therapies uh, as people are exploring options for their patients who honestly are suffering on a regular basis. Some of them are and are looking for options. Um, if those of you who are out there listening, and I encourage you to listen and then share it with your colleagues. These videos will be available afterwards on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. You can share them all. We'll have the audio out on the podcast stream as well for Azra Rap, A-S-R-A-R-A-P-P, if you want to subscribe to that podcast. But uh, go to the Headache SIG's website. Join, um, join the SIG. Be part of the organization. They send out a newsletter periodically. They have these events. It's a great way to learn from colleagues that are doing this research, doing the clinical uh, front-end uh, experimentation and, and exploration. But also, it's a great way to share your experiences back to the group so other people learn from your own experiences. So I encourage you to be part of the conversation and not just an observer. Um, so those of you out there listening, and, and feel free to share and encourage your colleagues to continue this conversation. I want to thank you all, Meredith, Nat, Gaurav. It's a wonderful conversation about a topic that I don't get to do clinically, so I learn a lot from this experience. Um, and, and my treatment of choice has been phenergan, promethazine for my headaches. So hopefully there's a few more options out there if I ever have to. Luckily, haven't had a migraine in a while, but hopefully uh, I'll have some options if I have to ha suffer through that one more time. So thank you guys for um, being part of this. And I, I look forward to seeing you at the meeting. Hopefully you'll be at the fall meeting. I'll be there um, and we'll get to chat in person as well. Thank you guys. Mm -hmm.